Till death us do part. Till death us do part. I therefore proclaim that they are husband and wife. Who doesn't love a wedding? As a guest, we get an open bar, chicken or beef, and a great night. The couple getting married, however, have a long road ahead. 56% of marriages end in divorce. That's the ones that end in divorce. What percentage stay together for the kids? Let's say 20%. You now have a technology that fails 76% of the time. That's insane. When the phrase, till death do us part, was first uttered, it meant something entirely different to what it does today. Even the most conventional marriages are completely different to what the institution was created for. So, let's learn about marriage. I want our marriage to be perfect right from the start so we don't end up like Kirk and Luann. We never will. It's Halloween next week, so I figured we'd get into the scary stuff, starting with marriage. (laughs) No, I kid, I kid, I love weddings. Marriage is a different story. I'm not sure I'm yet to experience it. Welcome back to Learning Things. My name is Lucy. And yeah, today we're doing marriage uh, because it's got a really rich history, a really interesting one in terms of You might not be shocked to hear this information, but it's still fascinating to see how far we've strayed from what marriage was initially made for. About 4,300 years ago, a couple in Mesopotamia got married. But when I say couple, I don't mean it in the way that we mean it today. Like, you hear the word couple and you just assume, you know, a, a romantic pairing. They're in it together. They're fond of each other even, hopefully. Throw all of that out the window. Love had literally nothing to do with the concept of marriage, and we have strayed so far from the original institution of it. After that first recorded marriage, the concept spread pretty quickly, and within about 500 to 700 years, it was embraced by ancient Hebrews, Greeks, and Romans. But if it had nothing to do with love, what was the point? Well, logistics, naturally. The primary purpose of marriage in its inception was to legally bind a woman to a man to ensure that any offspring she had was legitimately his and could legally serve as an heir. When a woman was married, she then became the direct property of a man. In the same sense that, you know, you you might have a pet and they're in your name, a woman was like that. It was almost like an object on a list of assets. In like nine out of 10 cases, it was usually arranged by the father of the bride and he'd just like go and shop around and find like a good match for her. Um, Obviously not in terms of like getting on with each other in any sense of the word, but like logistically, would it serve both families? Did she have something to offer them? Could they offer something to the father of the bride? And in Greece, the father would hand his daughter over and literally say... I pledge my daughter for the purpose of producing legitimate offspring. Like, that's literally what marriage was. If wives failed to produce offspring, if they were infertile or something, then the man could take the wife back and get a new one. You know, like in consumer law, it was defective. But it also wasn't necessarily like a strict partnership. So if you, as the woman, married a man and that man died you were then like contractually obligated to just kind of marry his brother or marry his father if he was available. And if no one in the immediate family was available, you'd just start going through the close family tree branches and pick some of them. So you were kind of like a substitute teacher, but a bit spicier and with less rights. 
The other interesting element that we've really strayed away from is that marriage obviously being an agreement, before the ceremony even happens, both parties had to come together and sign a contract about what they were getting in exchange, essentially like a prenup. The father of the bride would arrange like the payment, something like a, like a dowry, or he might receive payment from the new groom because it really was like a business deal. And in its early inceptions, though culturally people have had partnerships since the dawn of time, like having a, a partner in the sense that, you know, you're fond of them, like think the term soulmate, like all of this jargon, like that that's not necessarily a new thing. People always had partnerships. It's not like love wasn't invented till the 1500s. Like people cared for each other and might have a partnership. It just had nothing to do with marriage. So in that sense, marriage wasn't necessarily in its inception like forced monogamy. You weren't expected, or at least the the groom, I should say, wasn't expected to remain like strictly monogamous. And so if he wasn't satisfied sexually or if, for example, the wife was infertile, but he didn't want to get rid of her because maybe she was beautiful or maybe there was a higher status he was receiving with her, he could get what was known as a concubine, which is essentially a mistress but it's just like a, a lower class person, someone who was of a lower class than the couple and usually a slave. She would be selected to kind of like live in as a mistress and she was expected to basically be a slave in the household. Like she was meant to do all the chores. She was meant to treat the wife with utmost respect. And if they ever went out in public as a trio or if she just went out with the wife, the mistress was expected to wear a veil to kind of show to everyone that it's like she, Oh man, what a time. Like she was she was basically just showing that she was less important. She wasn't the the wife, like don't treat me with respect. That's what that veil would symbolize. And if she was the one that ended up having the child, the kind of agreement that they had at the time was that that child would remain legitimate. They just wouldn't tell anyone that it was the concubine that, you know, conceived the child. Once a child was born, this marked a huge step for the groom. Um, it was seen of as almost like a rite of passage marriage back then in the same sense as like going to uni would be now. Children played a huge role as like a genuine legal asset. So if the husband needed to borrow money or, you know, put a payment down on something that he didn't have in cash, he could actually use the, the existence of the child and put the child down as security for this loan. And that's another reason why marriage was required in the first place, because you couldn't do that with a child that was born out of wedlock. So the child needed to be a legal asset. It's literally what they were. And for the Anglo-Saxons and early tribal groups in Britain, marriage was seen as the way to foster relationships. In the book Marriage, A History, How Love Conquered Marriage by Stephanie Kuntz, Kuntz, C-O-O-N-T-Z, my word, we would have a bull with that one in Australia, but I don't think I have to say her last name again. I have no idea how it's said. She wrote, you established peaceful relationships, trading relationships, mutual obligations with others by marrying them. And in ancient Greece, there was almost a bit of a debate, a legal debate in terms of whether marriage should be compulsory for men. Because as I was saying before, in terms of it being a rite of passage, similar to that in going to university, men weren't actually allowed to hold public office if they weren't married. I suppose it was a legal security thing. Like as we're covering slowly, it's like that was the conception of marriage. It was like having a credit score. 
Before we move on to religion getting involved, I did want to touch on the concept of, of same-sex unions because they were plenty common across the globe. There were same-sex unions in ancient Greece and Rome, Mesopotamia, Native American and African cultures, some areas of China and in Europe's history. At least two of the Roman emperors were in same-sex unions, and of the 14 Roman emperors, at least 13 of them were said to have been bisexual or exclusively homosexual. In late medieval France, they had same-sex unions called in... in... mm, okay, give me a second. In brotherment? In brotherment. In brotherment sounds good. Let's go with that. And this in brotherment concept was basically the sharing of un pan, un vin, et un boss. I'm certain I've not pronounced that right, but it means one bread, one wine, and one purse. And apparently this concept in France might represent one of the earliest forms of sanctioned same-sex unions. But same-sex marriage was outlawed in December of 342 AD. They got onto it pretty quickly when you think about it. By two Christian emperors and they specifically outlawed marriages between men. Religion gets involved. So as the Roman Catholic Church kind of became this powerhouse in Europe, suddenly the blessing of a priest was a required element in order to be legally married. And by the 8th century, marriage was basically a sacrament or a ceremony to bestow God's grace, whatever that means. Um, there was one good thing about religion getting involved. They did kind of preach that men had to respect their wives a bit more, like treat them as, as a person, if you will. Because of the nature of, of religion versus law, there is oftentimes more compassion involved with a religious kind of view of things. So men were taught to respect women more, which I imagine was a bit of a struggle at first. And saying that out loud, you know, it's still a struggle for some today, I hear. So we're still getting there. But they were also forbidden from divorcing their wives, which was a completely new pivot. Like, as I we was saying before, wife consumer law was in full force. If yours wasn't working or if you just didn't like it anymore, you didn't have 14 days to return them. You could return them whenever you wanted. Get a new one. I can't stress how marriage really wasn't anything like we see it today. But this pivot when the Catholic Church got their mitts on it is when we start to see marriage become a bit more familiar in terms of how we see it today. There was also a declaration that, quote, the twain shall be one flesh, which basically pressured men to stay more sexually faithful to their wife and only their wife. Not to say they did. Um, and wives were still a second class citizen under their husband. But, you know, baby steps. Child brides. Backtracking a little bit here to 5th century BC, so before all the Roman Catholics got involved, before marriage was this, you know, what it was starting to become as we were just covering, they used to literally gather all the girls in, a, in an area that had just reached sexual maturity or were close to and sell them to be married. An auction, if you will. Herodotus describes the practice, which I will read for you now. They used to collect all the young women who were old enough to be married and take the whole lot of them all at once to a certain place. A crowd of men would form a circle around them. An auctioneer would get each of the women to stand up one by one, and he would put her up for sale. He used to start with the most attractive girl there, and then, once she had fetched a good price and had been bought, he would go on to auction the next most attractive one. They were being sold to be wives, not slaves. All the well-off Babylonian men who wanted wives would outbid one another to buy the good-looking young women, while the commoners who wanted wives and were not interested in good looks or couldn't afford them 
used to end up with some money as well as the least attractive women. So literally like those deals where they are begging you, begging you to buy a Samsung Galaxy and they'll offer you a, like a watch, a Samsung watch. It's like, we know you want the iPhone. We know there's more attractive wives on the stage, but if you give the Samsung Galaxy a go, we will give you a free watch. Please try it like that, but with daughters. <laughs> and contrary to what you might think and what I assumed, um, virginity wasn't actually the be-all end-all in terms of a quality bride. In fact, the Lydians who were in you know, present-day Turkey, as we know it today, they would send their daughters out to work the streets, so to say, to raise money for their dowry. So it wasn't virginity that was really looked upon as this like form of purity. I think that was a church thing. can almost guarantee it was a church thing. The big X factor, if, you, if you're curious, is teeth. <laughs> if you had a full set of teeth and they were, you know, the shade of a latte or whiter, you were probably auctioned off first as like the prettiest girl in all of the land. Now, fast forwarding back to where we are up to in the 16th century when the church got involved, law decreed that no child under the age of seven was allowed to get married, um, which seems fair to me. Seven is a good start for the 16th century. But obviously not all parents abided by the law because it was still a contractual, often financial agreement. So selling your daughter would make you some money. The age of consent defined by the church for girls was 12 and boys 14. The age in which girls were married off was usually between the ages of 9 to 11. Wife selling. So the church created a problem, which I'm sure you're shocked to hear because religion has historically never really caused much of an issue at all. Previously, men were able to return a faulty wife and get a new one pretty flimsily. They didn't really have to do much to get that process done. But now that the church was involved and divorcing was, I mean, basically impossible. The only way you could get it was if you were really wealthy because you needed this like parliamentary signed document to allow your divorce to actually go through. So most people couldn't afford it at all. It was genuinely for like only aristocrats, people with a lot of money that were able to get a divorce. In comes wife selling. They believe it started around the 17th century, and if a man was unhappy with his wife, he could parade her about town with a halter or like a sash around her neck or her arm or waist, and he would basically show her around, think like a horse at the Easter show or like a, a cattle show near you. You walk it around the ring, you show, look, show, look at the moo. Do you like the moo? Have a look at the hooves, lovely hooves. They'd do their little lap and then they would publicly auction off their wife. <laughs> and, and it was, you know, it was obviously to the highest bidder. And the other thing is that he didn't have to tell his wife about this at all. Like she could wake up for brekkie and then be sold for lunch, you know? The only problem with this practice, um, apart from the obvious stuff, is that it didn't really have any basis in law. So technically their previous marriage was still in effect. Um, so legally, it didn't really hold much ground. So police ended up having to come in and stop people from doing that. Uh, but it persisted until as recent as 1901. One of the earliest depictions on the rituals of marriage was found in a letter between Pope Nicholas I and Boris I, who was the king of the Bulgarians. Now, the Bulgarians had only newly converted to Christianity and they had a couple that wanted to get married, but they didn't know how it worked. So that's what this letter was. Pope Nicholas was explaining to King Boris 
what marriage is, how the ceremony works, kind of like a how-to guide. And it's helpful because, I mean, now we can look back at it and see what, what it was. So according to the letter, the union was initiated by a betrothal or an engagement, which the Pope described as a promise from a man to a woman of a future marriage. Then the man had to make a pledge by placing a ring on the woman's finger. Finally, after negotiations, the husband or the future husband would endow his future bride with property and go through, you know, a contractual agreement in the presence of a witness or plural witnesses. So you also couldn't exactly elope. Now, the process was that once this uh, engagement had been made, it gave the church an opportunity on a Sunday to list off all the couples who were going to get married, and that would give the community a chance to object if they thought that it wasn't going to be a prosperous union or for whatever reason they had. So if a priest married a couple who hadn't announced their engagement and the church hadn't you know, read their names off on the list of couples that were going to get married, the marriage was not legal and the priest would be suspended for three years because it it was illegal. It was like an illegal practice. Now some fun little wedding trivia for you. The reason it's called the ring finger is because it was really commonly believed that your ring finger had a vein that ran all the way from the finger to your heart. And that's why we put a ring on the ring finger. But none of our veins and our fingers go to our heart, but it's cute. So who cares? You may now kiss the bride isn't just a cutesy thing that we do. In ancient Rome, the kiss between a man and a woman was said to be kind of like a legally sealing act for the contract of marriage. In many cultures still today, the husband and wife's hands were literally tied together to symbolize the union, which is where we get the saying tying the knot. At the altar, the groom and his groomsman would always stand on the right side of the bride and his right hand or his sword hand would always be free so he could attack or fight off a jealous rival during the ceremony. (laughs) And the bride's veil? Ancient Greeks and Romans thought that it would protect the wife from evil spirits and that's why we still wear them today. Love gets involved. Now, something important to remember here is the concept of, you know, till death do us part meant something completely different back then to what we hold it to today. Till death really was only until like your late 20s. Obviously, as time passed, the more technology and medicine we were discovering, the age would go up naturally. But originally, the life expectancy of a human was like genuinely your 30s. If you hit your 40s, you were an elder. And women also frequently died during childbirth because they just didn't have the means to ensure a safe pregnancy in the first place. Um, You know, think about what we do today in terms of like even prenatal vitamins. Women tend to live a completely different lifestyle while they're pregnant to ensure the safety of themselves and their baby, childbirth and beyond. They didn't have any of that back then, you know? So complications in birth were a whole lot more common and women died all the time during childbirth. That's another reason why marriage was conceptualized. Because of the idea that sometimes a woman would birth a child, she would die in childbirth. If the couple hadn't been married prior to the birth, that child wasn't legal. It didn't count, essentially. So this idea of till death do us part was never meant to last as long as we hold it to to last today, you know? But sometime in the Middle Ages, scholars believed that the French, quote unquote, invented the idea of love in a marriage. Shocker. 
They based it on Sir Lancelot falling in love with King Arthur's wife at the time, Queen Genevere. Did I get that right? Guinevere. Oh, close, but no cigar, Lucy, once again. Uh, Queen Guinevere. In the 12th century, the narrative was also changing as well. So men were, were able to access literature, advice literature, self-help, medieval self-help, if you will, that was telling them that in order to woo the object of their desires, they were to compliment her eyes, hair, and lips. This was also when Romeo and Juliet was published in the 1500s. So it's not to say that the idea of love in a union was uncommon. It just wasn't a reason to get married. It was seen of as like a completely separate culture or concept rather. Marriage was business. Love was emotion. They were different. It, they just didn't see a reason to kind of combine them together. It wasn't until the Victorian era that love was seen of as a good enough reason to get married. Like it, it was genuinely seen of as like an absurd reason to get married until the 1700s basically. Queen Victoria and Prince Albert were kind of trailblazers in the idea of marrying someone who you actually like. They got married in 1840 and when her diary entries were released sometime later, she basically wrote in this diary entries about how she was obsessed with Prince Albert. She loved him. She was just so happy with the state of her marriage. And so that was inspiring to a lot of people. They were like, oh, I too can find my Prince Albert. As literacy levels improved and the postal system was kind of finding its feet, people were finding a way to court others through the form of the love letter. There were even letter-writing manuals that people could buy if they weren't particularly good at expressing themselves in that way, and it had like a list of vocabulary or sample sentences that they could use to, you know, put in their letter to their desired one. <laughs> Now that we know the history of marriage, this is what I mean when I say it is really weird to kind of look at the, the side by side in terms of how far we've come and what we've turned marriage into. But across the world, the rates of marriage are actually declining pretty steeply. In the UK and Australia, we're seeing the lowest rates of marriage in recorded history. People are also marrying later and the richer the country the later the marriages tend to be for women. So in Sweden, for example, the average age of marriage for women went up from 28 in 1990 to 34 in 2017. In 1971 in Britain, according to their census, 85% of women were married. In the 2011 census, that figure went down to 58%. And marriage satisfaction rates are a whole different story. Like it's one thing to look at divorce rates, but some like think about the amount of people that are staying together, you know, just for the kids or just because they've got too many logistics to sort out if they were to divorce or too much property or assets to divide up and they can't be bothered. Like marriage satisfaction rates are where it's at, in my opinion. According to research done by Gitnux, I think it is G-I-T-N-U-X, Gitnux. I'm pretty sure this was in the United States. Only 49% of people surveyed reported being happy in their marriage. I shouldn't laugh, but it is funny because it's like, what did we expect, to be honest? Like when you take the concept of marriage, what it started as, and apply the same regulations and expectations to modern day, naturally, it's not. It, it, there's no possibility it can work out the same way. It was also never meant to work out in a happy way in the first place. It was a financial transaction. In terms of which married couples are the happiest across the world, a team of scientists from the University of Roklaw, Warclaw in Poland 
interviewed almost 9,500 couples from 45 countries and found that Hungary was the happiest. The full list goes Hungary at number one, Malaysia number two, Portugal number three, the US, Italy, Slovenia, Mexico, India, Australia, and then Poland at number 10. Pakistan, Uganda, and South Korea were the top three of most unhappy. There's a really, really fantastic YouTube channel uh, called Soft White Underbelly. If you haven't heard of it, go check it out. I can't recommend it more. Mark Later is a photographer. He sits down with people from all walks of life and just hears their stories, asks them, you know, the questions that people would normally be a little bit too shy to ask or maybe they feel that it's not appropriate. And it's just so fascinating. The people he has on are always really open and willing to share their story. Anyway, you get the point. He did one with a divorce lawyer. People just continue to get married. Not only do they continue to get married, there's a presumption that you should get married. And if you don't get married, there's something wrong with you. If you say to someone, we've been together five years and we've decided we're not going to get married. We're going to move in together, but we're not going to get married. Ooh, what's wrong? You have intimacy issues? What's your problem? Meanwhile, 56% end in divorce. It's, it's literally fits the legal definition of negligence. Divorce rates are pretty staggering. In 2021, the Maldives were having the most trouble in paradise. <laughs> oh, stuff it. And they had the highest divorce rates in the world. It also has the highest rate of divorce in any country at any given time. And in 2003, it actually won a Guinness Book of World Records for having the highest ongoing divorce rates. In terms of why this is, it's actually a pretty easy explanation. They follow um, Islamic principles and Sharia law. And under those, the process for a divorce is a little different <laughs> to over here. A man can literally just verbally state that he wants a divorce and that's it. It's done. There's no real complications or anything. So that's why the divorce rates are essentially so high, you'd imagine, because, you know, makes sense. If you can get divorced that easily, people probably would. <laughs> Marriage is cool and do it all you want. And I fucking love weddings. But I think something that's interesting is that I don't, I, and I didn't know this until recently, I don't think people realize how much marriage is in terms of a, like the legalities. Like, for example, in terms of like the asset split, like if you don't have a prenup, for example, and, and you go through divorce and, and you're trying to get 50-50 down the middle, if you buy anything, even if it's in your name, if that was purchased during the marriage, then it can be split 50-50. Like it literally doesn't matter whose name it was in. If you buy it during the marriage, it gets split 50-50. I'm actually all for a prenup. I understand why people think it's gross because, you know, inherently it it's almost suggesting you're putting the marriage to bed before it's even started. Like I get that, but I I, it's smart. It's really smart and it can really work in your favor no matter which side of the relationship you're on. You can come together while you still love each other and while everything is great because like, you know, and this is something the divorce lawyer said in the video, it's, it's such a good point. Why wouldn't you work this out now before you're angry at each other? So you could come together and like, let's say you're going to stay at home and raise the kids and you're not going to focus on your career while you're in the marriage, whether you're a man, a woman, whatever. You can come together and be like, hey, I'm not going to work while we're married. I'm going to be at home. I'm going to be looking after the kids. I'm going to be doing all this stuff. My career is going to be on hold and it's not 
going to be flourishing. So if we were to separate and get divorced, I would need financial support for, you know, at least a year after the divorce while I get myself back on my feet. And the partner can be like, yep, that makes sense. And then you work out the numbers and and that's that's an area where it really can work in your favor. The divorce lawyer gave advice that I think is like pretty, pretty sound advice. You, your prenup can be as simple as yours, mine, ours, those three categories. So everything you get throughout the marriage, as long as you've signed a prenup that just says yours, mine, ours kind of thing, you just divvy it up throughout the relationship. Like if you, let's say, for example, a member of your family needs somewhere to live and, you know, you can financially support that. So you buy them a house or an apartment or whatever it is, right? If you don't have that prenup in effect and you guys divorce, even though that house is in your name, your spouse could come and like force you to sell it. I'm not saying they would. It's just that this prenup concept is really not that crazy when you think about it. Like the idea of having yours, mine, ours is actually really sensible. So if you had that prenup arrangement, no matter what happens in your relationship, that member of your family is going to stay in that house that you bought them because of, you know, that arrangement. You buy a house, you do a HUD one, a lead paint disclosure, you got to sign all these things that uh, this is how much the interest is going to be. And this is what you get married and get a fucking pamphlet. You don't get anything. You just did the most legally significant thing you're ever going to do other than die. And no one has explained any of it to you. So yeah, I don't know. I, it, love is completely different to marriage. I absolutely believe in love. I, I believe in weddings and, and marriage. It's great. Like I love weddings and I, I wish nothing but the best for the couples. And who knows, like I'll, maybe I'll get married. But like I think doing this research has just given me a new perspective on like the necessity of it. In the Western world, we don't live in a time where being a bastard, being a, a child out of wedlock has any real consequences for you socially or legally like it did back then. Like it doesn't matter. And so I think people are starting to shift to a point of like, do we really need this? Or why don't we just, you know, be a partnership, be a little unit against the world? Like you don't necessarily need a marriage to do that. But yeah, let me know what you think, um, if this has indeed changed your perception of marriage a little bit. Um, it definitely did for me, but I'd love to know what you guys think or if you have any suggestions for episodes in the future, please let me know. All the links are below, including Instagram and uh, emails. I love an email. I'm a slut for an email. It makes me feel important. It makes me feel like I have a place in society. So if you would like to make me feel like I have a purpose, shoot me an email, babe. <laughs> but other than that, make sure you are rating five stars on your podcast app of choice. Hit that like button and subscribe on YouTube. And I will see you guys next week. Adios. <laughs>